How many of you have read the book of the story of Ruth before? Yeah, a lot of you. Others, not so much. It's one of the great short stories in kind of world literature, isn't it? And uh, there is so much that we can learn from it. And uh, this chapter, and a part of it is a bit like 1 Corinthians 13. These verses not infrequently appear in weddings. Ruth's promise to Naomi. Um, and they're beautiful. I mean, it's, a, it's, an unpa- it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, but this beautiful story is designed to help us to do the stuff that God wants us to do because it's a story of a bunch of people who do the stuff. And it's as they do the stuff that God acts in the world and God heals and restores. So we're going to learn a lot from here. And the first thing we're going to see... is that life is really, really hard. Uh, Now, it's really, really hard for Naomi uh, and Elimelech, her husband, and the kids, because the story starts with there being a famine in the land in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the Hebrew, the house of bread, the place where there should be an abundance, there should be food. Now there's famine. Has anyone here ever gone hungry because there was no food in the village or the town or the city or the land where they were living, where you actually didn't know where your next meal was coming from and you thought, I I actually don't know if I'm going to be able to feed my kids. Has anyone ever experienced that? No. That makes us an extraordinarily privileged generation. Up to the rise of industrial agriculture, um, famine was uh, the reality of most people's lives. Pretty much most people lived uh, with just barely enough calories provided from their subsistence farming to survive. They had very little surplus food stored and one good drought one failure of the crops could plunge their uh, village and their community into crisis and they would starve to death. It's just the history. You know, you, you read the history of um, Europe and you go, it's a history of famines and masses of people dying from starvation. You read when, when this was written in the Middle East, uh, not a lot of place to store water, not a lot of place to store surplus food. So famine was a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, we've been spared it. I, and I think that's an important thing to note, right? I think one of the challenges for us in our context here is actually life isn't that hard for us. Now, I don't mean to diminish whatever hardship you and I are going through because I know we all have our challenges. But I think sometimes... Sometimes the wonder and the glory and the goodness and our need for God is not shown, is not thrown into relief by the reality of the suffering and the hardship that we actually face because mostly our lives are pretty good, aren't they? Mine is. I've never, I mean, we have self-inflicted famine. You do intermittent fasting to manage your triglyceride levels and lose weight and increase your energy levels. You go, yeah, I can fast. Great. It's a good thing to do. Maybe you can manage it for 24 hours. But these people face the reality 
regularly of starving to death. That was really hard. Now, I'm not saying we'd be better off spiritually if we had really, really hard lives. I just find it interesting, uh, you know, if you're a person of faith, why sometimes, and I may be thinking about myself, I can sometimes think, hmm, God's not that amazing. It's because I don't really need him much because <laughs> my life's not that bad. So it was really bad, really, really bad. And it was so bad that they fled from Bethlehem. These were uh, Jewish folk in the place of abundance and fullness, which has run out of food. And then they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, Moab, the Moabites, were a people who were regarded in the Old Testament as, as the epitome of evil. You did not associate with the Moabites. I was trying to, it was like, and to go and live amongst them was a sign of just extraordinary desperation. I was trying to think, I actually was trying to think about a contemporary example, and I I really can't because we're actually a pretty inclusive sort of society. But it would be like, um, I mean, I'm just going to offend someone. You just, because we, you know, like you just go, I don't know, it'd be like a Hamas commander fleeing to get medical help in an Israeli hospital. Like you're a a Palestinian Hamas terrorist and you spent your life trying to kill the Israelis and then in utter desperation, the only place you can go to have your life saved is to the enemy, to the Israelis. Does that work? Wrong way around? Okay, so if you're an Israeli, you're a Mossad commander. Well, yeah, well, because that actually happens all the time, that the Israelis treat the... Uh, and a Ham- yeah. yeah, I was more thinking about the, the racial kind of separation and the hatred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to think of a contemporary example. Um, like for Australians, who would you never go to visit? Who would, you n- who are the, who are beyond the pale for us? There's no one, really. New Zealanders. <laughs> if you're winning. <laughs> you get the point. So out of desperation, and they go as refugees, as economic refugees. There were constant people movements through the world as people just fled to try and find food. Um, of course, the problem, the problem with going to Moab is it was always going to make re-entry back into Israel hard. Why? Because you've been contaminated. Who knows what kind of contamination you're going to bring back into Israel from the Moabites. So it's a high-risk strategy driven by desperation. They go to an evil people. And then um, Naomi is there. Her sons marry Moabite ladies. She's there for 10 years. So they settle down. Like this is not a, it's not just here for the long weekend, stock up on the food and go home again. It's now, you're settled. It's a decade, right? And her, and her sons marry these ladies, and then all the men die. That's hard. Because to be a widow in Naomi's time was to be at the absolute bottom of the social and economic hierarchy. There was no one to provide for you. I mean, there was no Centrelink. There was no social safety net. There was... And, and if you think about it, in a, 
in an economy where you couldn't store surplus capital, right? You, couldn't, you didn't produce much leftover grain, and whatever you had, you stored to feed your immediate family because you knew the next famine was just around the corner. You were not going to provide for strangers. And you needed to have men to protect you, and you needed to have men to work the fields and to provide for you. And all of that goes. And you have this picture of a woman who is utterly, utterly destitute. A Jew in a pagan land, uh, fleeing death, now possibly forever cut off from going home. And then uh, her source of protection and livelihood and income is removed. Her source of status, everything is gone. Um, I'll give you an example of how desperate she was. Uh, in when, when the time that this was said, do you know who the most common, um, uh, what category of women most typically ended up in prostitution? Widows. That's that that was that's how you survived, right? Because there was nothing else, no no other way to survive, and she's desperate. And uh, that is a major, major, major challenge. And the question is, um, how's God going to turn this around? And it's a question for Naomi. Naomi has become bitter because she's, a fa- she's been a faithful Israelite. And she's believed in God. She said her prayers and she's done what she could. And now it just seems like God has just abandoned her. And that's hard, isn't it? I don't know if you've gone through hard times. Uh, I suspect none of us have gone through anything like Naomi went through, but in our own version of our hard times, probably the most difficult question for a person of faith is, well, where's God in this? Why did God let this happen? And maybe the sneaking little doubt, which I think when you read the text Naomi had, maybe God is behind it all and is punishing her. I mean, maybe she's thinking to herself, well, if only we hadn't left Israel and lived amongst these pagans, if we hadn't compromised to save our lives and gone to live in Moab, maybe then God wouldn't be punishing us. Maybe that's what we think, right? Don't we? We go, well, when things go really wrong, we can look back in our past and go, oh, maybe it's because I did X, Y, or Z. That's a question, right? see that in the media sometimes people say that come right out and say it you know you might say the bushfires that we're experiencing now are god's judgment on us it's, you know i mean maybe except maybe not because jesus was asked exactly that question in his day a tower had fallen on a bunch of people and followers came to him and said well jesus like tell me why did all these people die? Was it because they sinned or their fathers sinned? The question is to Jesus was, did God punish these people by causing this catastrophe? And Jesus said, nah. <laughs> nah. Nah. It's not the God of the Bible who does this stuff in this way. In fact, the whole movement of the Old Testament scripture is actually God's heart is broken by the plight of people like Naomi, by the widows and the orphans, the vulnerable. And he acts to save them. 
The question is, how's he going to do that? How's he going to do that? Well, here's the thing. Um, I've, the more I've thought about this, I find it incredibly profound. Um, God is going to, when you read the book of Ruth, God reverses Naomi's fortune, we see in chapter 1, through Ruth doing the stuff. We've had this theme the last four weeks that God calls us to do the stuff. Do the stuff that Jesus said we should do. And in the same way that the vast majority of evil and suffering in the world is caused by humans, so the way in which God undoes and heals human suffering and heartache is typically through people. And uh, how is God going to reverse? How does God reverse Naomi's situation? Well, through Ruth. Her life is a mess. She says, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to, uh, I'm going to, with my tail between my legs, now in even greater desperation, I'm going to leave Moab and I'm going to go back to Judah. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And I'm hopefully, I'll just be a, I'll be a poor widow there, but at least I'll be amongst my people. And her uh, daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, um, they can stay in Moab. There's no, they're not obliged to come with her at all. And in fact, she says there's this weird thing. You might have thought, what's she talking about having, you know, having sons in her womb and what's all that about? Well, there was a, a custom in the scriptures and in the day called leverate marriage, which meant that if, a, uh, if you had two sons and one son died, the other son would take responsibility to have children through the deceased son's wife to preserve the family name. He would uh, impregnate the wife so that the, his brother's line could continue through the wife, right? So that was the idea. And Naomi goes, listen, even if I were pregnant right now, the sons who could fulfill their duty on behalf of their dead brothers, uh, they're, they're like, they're many years away from being ready to do their duty. And what, are you going to wait around that long? Uh, that's, and it's not about to happen because I'm a widow. And guess what? You need a husband to have sons to provide sons to do for you what your deceased husbands could have done. So it's just not going to work. So you stay here amongst your people. Maybe God will give you a husband here. Maybe not, but you're better off here. And Orpah goes, they, they both start off going, yeah, we're going to go with you. But then, then the one goes, yeah, okay, I'll stay here. And she's, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, isn't it? And then, of course, uh, what, does Ruth, what, what does Ruth do? Well, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? Ruth says this. She says, don't urge me to leave you. Or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She's Naomi. She's like, God has abandoned me. All the men are dead. I'm utterly alone. And then a Moabite daughter-in-law actually plays the role of God to her and, and makes a covenant with her, says to her 
words. These are, the, these are God-like words. These are the sorts of words that God says to human beings. I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's what Ruth is doing. They're the words of chesed, of unconditional, utter commitment. So, um, how does God turn this around for Naomi? Well, it starts with Ruth, who, who is God to her, right? Where, where, where is God in Naomi's life? Seemingly empty, seemingly void, seemingly absent. And then Naomi looks around and where's God in Naomi's life? Well, right there in front of her in this Moabite woman, Ruth, who says, I'll be with you. I'm yours. I'll make a covenant. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's the turning point in the story for Naomi. So that's fascinating. I, I got me thinking a lot. I thought, that's how we experience God today, mostly, isn't it? It's through other people. But actually, that's always been God's plan, hasn't it? Like when you think about it, the most profound ways God has acted in the world are, are often through other people. His plans, his presence are brought to us through others. And um, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because God needs hands and feet in the world. (laughs) God in his unmediated form is hard to hug. Um, But there we have it. It's Ruth making covenant, and that turns everything around. And then I thought, got thinking about it, right? I was like, okay. A couple of questions come to mind. A couple of questions come to mind. Who's your Ruth? <laughs> you know, when, when we have doubts and questions and we go, where is God? And, and who... Where is, where is the person in your life who, through whom God is speaking to you, through whom God is acting in your life to bring you hope and healing, through whom God is reversing your situation because they're there for you? Who is doing the stuff that God wants them to do in your life so that you can encounter God and be healed? Who's your Ruth? Do you have a Ruth? My hunch, is, my hunch is we all have Ruths. We just maybe don't notice that they're Ruth. We just think it's Fred. But actually, Fred's really Ruth. Hmm, very Roselle. Um, because <laughs> actually, Fred's the one through whom you experience the unconditional love of God, the chesed, covenant-making love of God, through whom God brings his presence to you. It's a person who prophesies into your life, who prays into your life, who tells you the truth about who God is, who brings you meals, 
who offers to clean your apartment or your flat, who drives you to hospital appointments, who picks up the phone just to see how you're doing. It's the person who says to you, you know what, I'm not going to leave you. I'll be here for you. <laughs> it's the person who says, you know what, you're really annoying and difficult, <laughs> but, but even your bad behavior will never drive me away because I'm here for you. Yeah, that's, that's your Ruth when we experience God through that person. And you go, okay, great, we all need a Ruth. Okay. The second question, who's your Naomi? That is, who is the person to whom you can be a Ruth? Who is the person in need, whose life is hard, for whom you can be the one in whom and through whom they experience God. How about that for a thought? Who's, who's that person? I don't know. Because, I mean, I think I, what I find fascinating about the way God has ordered life, and I think we're both Ruths and Naomi's, and that's the genius of the church and the body, Right? We encounter God as other people meet our needs and serve us, and then we become those in whom others encounter God as we meet their needs and serve them. Isn't that extraordinary? So who's your Naomi? Who's the, who's the person in your life who you are there for? Or the persons? Maybe you, see this can be, maybe you have a whole tribe of Naomi's. <laughs> you need an up-level of Ruth's then if you're going to, you know. Think, but, but who are the people for whom, where, you, where God is using you in their lives. And when, they in, and when they experience you, they're experiencing the love of God flowing through you to them. And I guess you can have, if we tease this out, you can have varying hierarchies of Ruth's and Naomi's in your life. So um, you could have a workplace Naomi. It's like a work wife. You can have a work, Naomi, who's just the person in work who, you know what, you are there for them in a way that others aren't, and you serve them and you love them, and maybe you don't ever have to preach at them, but you just, they encounter God through you. Church, family, it's there, right? So that's the question. Who's your, and, and I would want you, don't, um, don't leave here without thinking about that, Right? And if you don't have a Naomi, maybe you need to pray and ask God to show you a Naomi. And if you don't have a Ruth, maybe you need to open your eyes and look around you and go, maybe, maybe I've got a Ruth sitting right next to me. I just haven't noticed. Um, well, it's interesting. The other thought I had as I, as I kept thinking about this, I thought, well, well the problem is... Well, who's the ultimate Ruth? Because here's the problem with Ruths. I don't know if you've had this problem with those who've been around you. Is um, Actually, even Ruths let you down. <laughs> and they don't mediate God's presence to you perfectly. Now, in this story, Ruth does a pretty fine job for Naomi. And in fact, one of the things that's extraordinary in this story is all, as one of the commentators, who's a brilliant Hebrew scholar, uh, Robert Alter, has made the point, he said, this is the only successful stor short story where all the characters are good. 
Okay, it's actually completely unrealistic. It's not a, it's a, it's a fantasy, but it's a brilliant, it's, and it's the only story where it works because pretty much every other story, certainly every other biblical story and pretty much any other human story, your characters are always flawed. That's what drives the story along. Your hero has a flaw and how's the hero going to succeed in the quest in spite of the, the flaw and through the quest with the help of others overcome their flaw, right? That's how stories work. Every character in the Bible is flawed. Well, apart from this bunch, they're flawless. They're all good. Ruth's good. She never messes up. Why? How? Well, I think because Ruth is meant to point us to a greater Ruth who will never mess up. Because you and I know that while I say, look at who your roots are, you know there's, you're never going to find a Ruth like this, are you? <laughs> you might even say, we're destined to be permanently ruthless. <laughs> but, yeah, boom, chish, yeah, there we go. There's a, got to get those dad jokes in. Um, well, the Ruths we have are going to disappoint. And, and when you take up being a Ruth, to a Naomi, you know all too well how disappointing you're going to be, aren't you? Don't you? I do. I, I, I am acutely aware, even for those to whom I am the closest, that I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty bad Ruth. So why then do we have a perfect Ruth in the story? Well, I think it's because we're meant to look forward to a greater Ruth. Who's the greater Ruth? It's only one person who's actually in time and space being completely utterly flawless and in time and space has will never let us down and that's jesus that is jesus so ruth is a picture a prefiguring of jesus and says he's the one who will meet our needs he's the one who will serve us he's the one who will be there for us and here's the genius of jesus he's here for us through other people who now are full of his spirit. So who's the Ruth for you? It's the follower of Jesus who's had their own needs met by the perfect Ruth, who now imitates, models, and lives out the stuff that this perfect Ruth says you should do and gives you the resources of the Holy Spirit to empower you to do it. Who's your Ruth? Who's your Naomi? And, uh, and in the end, Jesus is the one who empowers all of this enables us to deal with the disappointments of those who let us down and who is the fulfillment of everything we long for and need. And the passage ends, which I love, with a glimmer of hope. Where does the passage end? What's the last verse? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, Arriving in Bethlehem, the house of bread, that's what Bethlehem means in Hebrew, as the barley harvest was beginning. You go, ah, oh, yes, the heart, it's, there's a glimmer. You go, yeah, okay, the reversal is starting to happen. The emptiness is being replaced by fullness. She's gone out to Moab, now she's coming back. She's gone out, and in the famine and the hardship and the death, she's had Ruth, she's encountered God, Jesus has come alongside of her, and he's brought them back. And next week, she's going to encounter fullness and the full reversal. So that's it. There's a glimmer of hope. 
the barley harvest. <laughs> I don't know, this Christmas, like we're, the barley harvest has started. God has showed up. The world is not a place of unremitting, ceaseless famine and death and alienation. We've been out in Moab, but we're coming back to Bethlehem and we're coming back to a place where it's good, where everything works. Place of abundance and fullness and there's hope. And oh my God, don't we need that? And we look forward to that. That's the season of Advent. We look forward to the coming of Jesus when we go, yes, this world will be healed and you will be healed. Our emptiness will be filled. Our, our, lost, our, our lostness will be undone and will be found. We'll come home. Our brokenness will be restored because the barley harvest is beginning. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you that you reversed Naomi's situation by showing up in Ruth and then Boaz and the others, as we'll see. And I pray for us as a little spiritual family that you will help us to embrace Jesus as our greater Ruth, as the one who is committed utterly to us and our well-being. And as we do that, that we'll in turn find and obey your calling to be Ruth to others. I pray that you'll lead us to the Naomi's around us. And Lord, I pray for anyone to this morning who's going through a particularly challenging and difficult and painful time, that you will open their eyes and their heart to see the ways in which you are speaking to them and loving them and blessing them through the, the roofs around them, even in this building this morning. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So we're going to wrap up and sing and worship. Uh, there'll be some people here who'd love, if you want prayer, a prayer blessing for anything. And, uh, and we talked last week about prophecy and bringing words of encouragement to each other. So over morning tea, as you talk and as we hang out, if you, if you have a word of encouragement or blessing or prophecy for someone, just feel free to share it with them. Um, and if you want to share it with the whole church, uh, you could, uh, you could uh, come and just have a word to me. And between the songs, we'll have a chance. If you want to bring a word to share with the church, you can do that. And we, we'll stop and listen and say, is this from God? And it'll be great. So um, let's stand and uh, sing together.